What's going on, guys? Before we get started on this episode of the podcast, make sure that you're following, you're subscribed, and give the show a rate. really helps us reach a wide variety of people so we can make some awesome content for you. Also, make sure you go follow us on Instagram at innovators.anonymous. You can get all the updated news on the show and see what's going to be coming down the pipeline next. Have a good one and enjoy. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Innovators Anonymous. My name is Colin Waitsman. I'm going to be your guy's guide today. As you can see, we've added a visual element. First time we, uh, we have this, so it's definitely exciting. Uh, another reason this episode is really special is that I have one of my close friends and co-workers with me, uh, Lexi Williams. Uh, we work together at Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, both specializing in uh, new business sales. Uh, Lexi, thanks for coming and uh, really excited yeah. to have you on. Of course. Thanks for having me. Excited to do it. Yeah. So I know right now uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of things in the air. Uh, 2020 has been a crazy year to say, say the least. Uh, you say that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to see how have you been doing with everything that's transpired since the beginning of March uh, into today, you know, in the middle of June? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's been ups and downs the way that I typically answer that question when someone says it is, you know, I have good hours and I have bad hours and I have good Mm. half hours and I have bad half hours. Um, and I think that's, you know, that holds true for most people, right? Like there's a pandemic outside and then, oh yeah, we're trying to like solve the world of systemic racism. Um, and you know, there was like what, like killer bees at one point and then there were murder hornets. Yeah, and like some killer rats in the subway in New York. So I think that, um, you know, if everyone could just like stop playing with their voodoo dolls, it might be okay. But uh, no, I think it's it's been all right. Um, obviously, like I said, it's been, it's been hard to be black in America for longer than this pandemic has been. But, um, you know, yeah. we've never had a conversation quite like this, um, at least in my lifetime. So really looking forward to that. And, um, you know, as far as the pandemic goes, like, I feel like things are opening up. So I'm optimistic. Same. I, I'm, I'm optimistic on yeah, the front that we have stores, businesses, and things appear to be opening up. Uh, so on that end, things are looking, are looking really good. But no then we, we also have these issues that are making things, you question, like uh, things seem to be at its all-time worst, or uh, if not all-time worst, obviously, uh, it, things are, the, the veil's been you know, pulled back and we can see sure. these things. Uh, yeah, one, one issue or the main topics I really wanted to, we want to go over uh, is are some of the, the racism that's going on throughout America. I know uh, that's a, a topic that you've been really passionate about. You shared your stories to um, a lot of different people throughout our company, as well as on your social media. Um, I wanted to get kind of uh, your your perspective. What have you seen um, on like a personal side for, um, you know, you growing up as being an African-American, especially, um, you know, being mixed? Because that's something that I've, I've had. Is, it's, a, it's a slightly different uh, experience than just being, you know, full black or full white. So how, how has that been for you growing up? Yeah. So it's been super interesting because, um, in America, I always say in America, you don't have the value of being mixed. Um, so there's, you're either, uh, too white or too black and you're never white enough and you're never black enough. And that as I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir on that one, but, um, 
you walk this super weird, like tightrope line growing up, right? So um, super privileged lifestyle I led, um, continue to leave. I love the bougie things in life. <laughs> um, and, you know, I went to prep school, went to a PWI, a predominantly white institution, and in the Northeast. And, you know, I was in a sorority and, you know, and like not like, I was not like an AKA. I wasn't cool enough for that. Like, um, you know, I went um, and did all these things that are like that sort of stereotypical, you know, white American, you know, college student thing. And it was, it's super weird when you grow up that way And for some reason, people still, like, at the end of the day, like, you're still just, like, a black person to so many people. And I was like, but I don't, I don't get it. Like, I love Lily Pulitzer and Vineyard Vines, right? Like, it's, I I didn't understand. Um, And then I think once, you know, and I got called Oreo, I can't tell you how many times. Which, like, I thought was so funny then. And then now I look back and I'm like, it's deeply disrespectful and racist. And I just, like, allowed it to happen regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember I was telling my parents this just a couple days ago about how I always had a watch. Like I always wear a watch. And, um, when I was a kid at summer camp, I would, I like made my mom make sure I had like a new watch for summer camp. Like it was like a thing. And we would go to Target like for camp mm-hmm. and I'd be like, mom, I need my new Timex. And, um, you know, I was like, I revealed to my mom, I was like, you know, when I went to summer camp, like I would tan because we're out on docks and we're horseback riding. You're outside in the sun yeah. all day long. But you would see the tan line for how light, light I would get in the, in the winter. And I wanted the kids, mostly white kids, mm-hmm. to see that I was lighter in the winter. So that, like, I was like, no, no, no. Like, I'm not, I'm not full black. Wow. And I can just, like, now I look back and I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I was so uncomfortable with my blackness because I was around whiteness all the time straightening my hair for every dance, right? Like now I'm like, man, this is the curls. Yeah, like this is what we're working with. But mm-hmm. uh, I didn't mean to like flip my hair aggressively. No, you're good, you're good. <laughs> um, right, but it's like little things like that that I think sort of add up that now in my like late 20s, I'm like, honestly, like fuck off. <laughs> this is this is who I am. Like I don't care if it's too white, not white enough, too black, not black enough. Like I didn't ask to be mixed and I'm absolutely obsessed with it. I know how to season my food and (laughs) I'm, you know, like I got a little bit of that, a little bit of an ass, like it's kind of great. So, um, and obviously those are very shallow things I'm kind of kidding about, but you know, I think that they hold true all the time and it's, it's, it's tough being mixed and people asking you, Oh, is that your real mom? Like, Yeah. Yeah, that that was the one. <laughs> that was the biggest uh, issue for me, I guess. Um, growing up being half black, half white, uh, it, the biggest, I guess, challenge was as a child uh, looking back at it because because uh, kids can be mean, <laughs> like, brutal. Like, They're brutal. Like, yeah, kids are kids are brutal, and when you're a, a a kid, you don't kind of realize what's being said to you. Like the yeah, times have been called an Oreo, uh, or the amount of times uh, I'm sure you probably got it. Whenever you're playing hide and seek, or the lights go out, uh, the second the lights go out, where's Colin? We're not gonna be able to flexy. <laughs> yeah, it, hilarious. It's like, all right, you're you're that's that's so funny. Uh, mm-hmm. Things like that, and um, I remember or smile th- so I can see you. Mm-hmm. What? 
Yeah. And at the time, it's crazy because you don't really notice, you don't think of it as, oh, this is, you know, really bad. And I think that main issue was because like you and I, we both kind of grew up in a an area where that's not an issue you see all the time, whether it be because you're in a PWI or you're in a privileged area. So that's why I think it took a little longer, at least for myself, I don't know about you, to kind of realize, oh, wait, this is not okay to be told like on a, a daily basis. I think that like also my parents sort of shielded me from it a little bit, or at least did the best that they could, right? Like yeah. I still had those like stereotypical talks with my dad. My dad is the black parent. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that they just thought that if I was the best athlete or the smartest kid or, you know, or whatever, that I could sort of outrun that. And, mm-hmm. and then I like, I went to college and then right after college, I was like, Oh God, no, like <laughs> I can't, you know? Um, so I think that that's probably fair. And I think it's a privilege that you and I have had that it, we were able to not recognize it until a yeah. lot later in our lives because so many people don't have that privilege. And so I think it's, it's super important for us to recognize that. Exactly. That, that's something that I, I try to recognize when we have these calls, these conferences, these discussions with uh, other African-Americans, whether it be in my friend group, our community, our company, is that I make sure that I recognize like, hey, the experience that I had was very different than the experience that they had. So I need to listen and understand. And it, it's my, it's changed my worldview and my, my perspective over the years because it, it's been from like, a, oh, this is how all African-Americans see the world because this was my experience to, oh no, like this, the world is extremely different. And I was, you know, pretty lucky to be in the position that I, I was for so long. Well, I think also a thing that you're sort of touching on there is like colorism is like very much a thing, right? Like, Mm-hmm. Having fair skin, whether you're half black, half white, or just a black per a full black person with fair skin, is a distinct privilege in and of itself, right? So like, yeah. it wouldn't matter. That's my thing. Like, I'm like, it doesn't matter that I'm half of anything. Like, right? Like, I can't control colorism. The only thing I can do is like recognize my distinct privilege in that. Yeah. And like, I just I hate when people are like, "Well, you're half white," and I'm like, "Yes, but I don't." People don't see me that way right like the white community just because I'm like half isn't like all right come on over here just because you're half like yeah happen right like it's colorism it's not my parents it's you know like Mm -hmm. that is so it's it's so deeply ignorant and and so difficult I think to grapple with because you you know as a kid you're not like oh that's colorism and, and at its best you're just like oh no Everybody tells me I talk white. <laughs> yeah, it's all um, it's all based because perceptions reality. So it, it doesn't matter the fact that you know this is my mother, this is my father, uh, and this is who I am going to be. It's it's how do I look and how am I perceived by other people? And so yeah, just like like especially colorism, you know, within the the black the black community where there's there's people that are hateful towards other yeah it's like oh he's like oh the the light skin attitude or the like oh, oh yeah he's great start- right like yeah he's really monetize that you know yeah so it's 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 difficult to see and it, it's something that you know i'm really not not a fan of it's like it'd be a, i'm i'm hoping that sometime in the in the future we can all come together as like a community be like hey we're all in this together like <laughs> let's not hate on each other for who we are but you know just be uh, a great people all together all at once 
Yeah. So, I mean, I mean one thing uh, that, that you see, and I know you mentioned uh, being in sports and how you're always like, hey, we're, we wanted to be the best athlete or, or whatever it is. Oh, like, yeah. Currently, you're, 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 working it, you're working in sports uh, and oh, yeah. being in on primarily for a New Jersey Devils hockey team up here in New- Northern Jersey. Uh, how have you found the transition? Uh, I'm not sure if you, you watched hockey b- beforehand, but how, how do you feel being, uh, you know, black woman in sports, especially uh, primarily focused on hockey? Um, I mean, you notice it every day. <laughs> uh, you have no choice. Uh, I step off the elevator every day and I'm like, Whoop, there it is. Mm. I am black and I am a woman. There it is. Like it's, I'm affronted with my identity literally every single day. Um, so that's interesting. <laughs> um, and so I think one of what, you know, one of the things to touch on there, right. Is like the idea that when people say like representation matters, it's like, there's like, I dare anyone to go into a place like any white person to go into a place where they know they don't look like anyone and they are the opposite gender of majority of the people in that space and do that every single day and see if that doesn't wear on you or if you don't notice it, right? Mm-hmm. And people are like, oh, it doesn't matter. Like, we're all – and it's like, no. Like, I notice every single day that I am not like you. And it doesn't matter how many things we have in common. At the end of the day, I think we all know what we know, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that is really interesting, Another thing is that, you know, I'm 27, whereas a lot of people that we work with specifically on our, our sales floor are 23 to, I'd say 25, maybe turning 26. And so I don't know what it is that happens after 25 that like your brain starts to do this thing. But, um, I think, you know, sometimes I do notice that. So you add that third layer on top of it and it's just like, all right, I need to take several deep breaths here today. Yeah. Um, but as far as it goes, just like working in hockey, right? Like when we, when I walk around the concourse, when we have 15,000 people in our arena, yeah. I'm like, there's a lot of white people here today <laughs> and every other game day. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that sometimes you notice it in slight ways, right? So like, when there's me and my white colleague standing there, like a white man inherently comes up and asks the white man. And I'm like, okay. Um, Or I notice it a lot when I'm standing with, um, we have obviously like these entry level employees called sales associates and they're the bomb and they're the greatest workforce ever. Um, But they're entry level and my position is not. And someone will see me standing with a a sales associate and me, and they will inherently ask the sales associate because this person's like white. And I'm like, Hey, there's my cat. Sorry. (laughs) Um, You know, and it's just kind of like, (laughs) all right. (laughs) You know, like I work in this building every day. This person doesn't, you don't know that you just saw that they were white and a man. So you asked them for directions. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's little stuff like that, that sort of starts to wear on you. I would say that like sort of overarchingly it's not this like deeply terrible thing, but it's something like I am consciously aware of every single day. Um, and something that I'm deeply dedicated to getting other people that look like me to work where I work, because I think it is a great place to work. Yeah. But I think that it would be better (laughs) if there were more people that looked like me, you know? 
Yeah, I think that the one of the biggest things, and it, it applies to everything, not just uh, where we're working or what we're doing, but uh, is having uh, you know a sense of diversity of what the world is looking like. Uh, whether it's because it it doesn't matter if the the group that you're working with or the people you're selling to or whatever is of a certain identity. Uh, like if if you're selling to primarily African Americans or white people or whatever, like I still think that you're it's important to have diversity, uh, not just of thought, but of, uh, of character and, you know, people that, that look different, uh, different shapes and sizes. Cause that's what the world is like. Not every, like, you're not going to be able to just, if you get a random group of a thousand people in the world, just get all of one, one, one race. You need to get, you know, you have a you know, diversity of backgrounds and, you know, where people came from. Yeah. I mean, I'll worry about diversity of thought and background and all of that stuff when there are more people that look like me. But for now, I'm deeply committed to actual diverse representation in people's skin color. Like that is like priority number one for me. Like I think diversity of thought is like a complete cop out by corporate America. Like I think it's it's like, well, we have lots of people with different backgrounds. And I'm like, sure. You grew up in Connecticut and this person grew up in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care. Like that, that means nothing to me. Genuinely means nothing. I think that that is a problem for 10, 15 years down the road for us to make sure that that's like what we're committed to. But today we need to be committed to getting more black people into corporate America. That is a, a, a true commitment. And I think that companies need to start saying that, mm-hmm. right? Like not like, Oh, we're committed to getting like diversity. And I'm like, what does that mean? Like, you know, I think that one of the best things to hit the internet in the past couple weeks was where everyone was like exposing these companies, like show us your board. And I was like, exactly. Like you can't scream diversity of thought and then be like, yeah, yeah, we're diverse in thought. We're diverse in background. And then everyone's white. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it doesn't, it doesn't just start with, uh, with the, with companies and the corporations. Uh, I think it goes down to the, the college level as well, where everywhere. Yep. Yeah. And college and high school and whatever it is, because it's uh, these applications for whether it's through the SATs, college board, whatever, like you're, you're saying we're, we're stressing diversity, but then you, like, well, then we probably wouldn't have PWIs or, or whatever it is if there was uh, some like diversity uh, Facts, was yeah. actually as important as you say it is, you know? Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. So that, that's one thing that I think is, is huge that it doesn't just start with the corporations, but it's rather everything else. And, you know, I mean, looking at colleges, we're starting to see a change, especially with athletes. Um, oh, for sure. Like, uh, I don't know if you saw uh, Mikey Williams just recently. Like, one of the top, yeah, top bat, one of the top basketball. So, for those that don't know, at fifteen. Uh, yeah, fifteen. One of the top basketball recruits in the country, class of twenty twenty three. He announced like last week uh, that he's going to be strongly considering uh, having an HBCUs uh, in several. Uh, of his final schooling decisions. So that, and that's going to be huge because the last major, like uh, especially basketball player to come out of an HBCU is in the fifties and sixties. And many of them don't even know their names. I had to, I had to look some up. Uh, So I think something like that can be huge for the black community. um, You know, being able to grow, especially those schools. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think, so first I think it's important to recognize. So I think it was, Mikey's mom played softball volleyball or softball at um, an HBCU, right? So, like, talk about just, like, following your mom's footsteps. I'm like, what kid doesn't, like, love that idea of, like, 
you know, following in your parent footsteps, but like on top of the fact that you have this like deep, rich heritage, like that's awesome. So it wouldn't matter where his mom went to school. I'm like sick. Like I love that you're like paying homage to your mom in that way. Yeah. I think that's awesome. Start there with that kid. Good job. The second thing that I will say is that how is a 15 year old seeing this stuff better than some like full grown adults that have control in these systems? Right. So the thing that I like how I feel about, first of all, let me, I'll say this. I think every black kid in America that has, that's like a top recruit should go to an HBCU at least for a year. And here, here's why I say that. So I worked in college athletics for four years, as you know, yeah. and the, the hard part about these HBCUs is that they don't get the same contracts and they don't have the same TV rights and they don't have all of those things that a college can use to get money to make their schools and institutions better because they don't have these like top players, right? Like Zion Williamson was worth like $5 million for <laughs> going yeah. to do, right? This kid's 18 years old going to Duke and literally getting Duke $5 million and right. Like you're probably questioning like, okay, well, what is that 5 million coming from? That's like, like I said, like TV rights, like stuff like that. Right. And he's not seeing any of that first of all. So you're not changing any family tree when a kid goes to college, which is tough. But second, a kid goes to college. That's, that's playing a, a sport like a Zion Williamson. I'm not saying that like, going to college is a bad thing. What I'm saying is that if he is worth $5 million to an institution and sees none of that, that's ridiculous right there. So let's just start with, that's a whole different conversation, but that's, yeah. <laughs> that's one thing, right? Mm-hmm. But the second thing is that with someone like Zion, if he had gone to an HBCU, he could have, now, you know, HBCUs are playing in their own sort of championship tournaments and things like that. So it is a little bit different in terms of what that looks like actually like on a basketball court mm-hmm. because you're not playing, you know, Duke. Or if you are, you're like the cupcake team for them, unfortunately, right? So it's mm-hmm. a little bit different. That said, why should you allow these large, predominantly white and all white male run institutions to profit off of a black man when there are literal schools that are run by people that look just like you, that if they're going, if someone's going to have to profit, profit off of you, like it might as well be someone that looks like you and to help a completely disenfranchised group, which is black people in America. And you know, I think that Mikey really just like exposed that that's like, a, a, frankly, like this really great idea, but I don't think it matters. I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but I don't think it helps as much like this year. I think that's going to matter five, 10, 15 years down the line when these really great schools are losing that are predominantly white are losing these athletes that are like, no, get out of here. Like you are not helping me and you are not helping the black community. I'm going to Howard then it's going to force these schools to change because they are losing money. And unfortunately, like green is like, unfortunately the language that a lot of these places speak, not to mention endowments. Like that is a huge driver uh, from my perspective, again, as someone who worked in college athletics for why I think these amazing 
black athletes, by the way, most of the top athletes in this country on basketball and football boards and things like that are black. Um, so let's just start there. Mm-hmm. But I think the reason that they should be going is like it can now people are going to want to donate more money and that's going to increase the endowment, which is going to increase the, the amount that they're able to then go and recruit more people because they have the resources to do so. So it's like this, it's going to create this like beautiful ecosystem for helping HBCUs that are severely underfunded to begin with. There is, I feel there's going to be a giant cultural shift, uh, especially with college athletics for the top level athletes really soon. Uh, there has we, to be. We saw, I think it was just yesterday, uh, Florida, um, announced that students in in Florida schools are going to be able to make money off of endorsements and sponsorships soon. Uh, we, we've seen a lot of uh, athletes um, started with, what was it, Northwestern saying that, hey, you're not going to just profit off of my name. So not only are these uh, are things going to start changing where athletes might be able to get paid, we have this other cultural shift going on where we have a lot of the, the black athletes saying, hey, I want to represent my people and I want to represent what's important to me and go to these HBCUs. So I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, you, you see in the, the I'm, I wouldn't say distant future, but I wouldn't say near future, like maybe like 10, 15 years, uh, these HBCUs really skyrocketing in popularity because uh, more people are going to them uh, based off of the two things that are kind of happening today. Which gets exposure, right? Which inherently increases their popularity. Yeah. You know, so, like how many people, I, I didn't know what BYU was before like Jim or Fred, <laughs> you know, like stuff like that, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, so, you know, anything that helps them, I'm, I'm all for. Oh yeah. Uh, I'm sure that all these, these big schools can only, or these smaller schools are only loving uh, having these big athletes come to, I'm sure not many, I mean, did you know Murray State before John Morant no. uh, two years ago? No, exactly not. So, so it's like having these things I think are really, are really huge. And, uh, I mean, talking about what's been going on recently, um, we've had a, a, a really big change in Juneteenth, the holiday that um, has recently been really accepted uh, much more recently. Uh, could you kind of explain what Juneteenth is and what it kind of means to the, the black community? Yeah, sure. So Juneteenth is uh, June 19th, um, for those that don't know, um, and I think that I'll start with um, Juneteenth is like, I think one of the most misconceived holidays up there with like Columbus day, right? Like I genuinely don't understand why we celebrate Columbus day, but I think it's, there's a very large misconception in what like freedom for black people or in that case, in this case, it would have been after. Yeah, yeah. Could you explain what happened on June 19th? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So June 19th in 1865, um, there was a general that rode to Texas and he basically read out to the people there that they were going to be free and they were no longer slaves. They were free men and women. And, um, so basically is like the celebration of, of freedom for African-Americans in this country. So it's kind of like black July 4th, but significantly more impactful. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the misconception there is that a lot of people say that, oh, um, when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed in 1863, that's what freed the slaves. And that is not true. Um, and a lot of people sort of hang their hat on that, 
people do not understand why I absolutely do not stand Abraham Lincoln. And now that people are like learning more about it, I'm like, <laughs> told you. Um, and so the Emancipation, Emancipation Proclamation, which by the way, was a complete political decision by Abraham Lincoln, not altruistic anyway. Um, the Emancipation Proclamation basically just said like, we'll free him. That's all it said, right? But let's not forget that our political system was n- now is not the same as the political system that we had then. And so, and also this was, we fought a war over this, right? An internal war, better known as the Civil War, um, or if you're from the South, the War of Northern Aggression. Um, <laughs> as, a, as a native New Yorker, I think that's hilarious. It's, it's um, yeah, it's hysterical. Get Still to this day, I don't get why people fly the, like y'all lost, people still fly the Confederate flag. Like, oh, honey, that's the losing flag. Yeah, it's like, imagine if like some of us were like, yeah, we're flying the British flag because, you know, we exactly you know what the the British has some really great points <laughs> on oppression. Like, what? No, you really um, do. Yeah, so get out of here. Mm-hmm. So anyway, they basically, they basically made it so that they were free, right? Black, African-Americans were free. Unfortunately, it doesn't account for the fact that this isn't enforceable in every state, right? So, you know, let's not forget also that we have states' rights versus federal rights. And so that's basically what we're fighting an entire war over on top of, you know, freedom for African Americans Mm -hmm. is in Texas, Abraham Lincoln did not have a stronghold. He couldn't enforce jack squat. And so then when this general, finally, they have the numbers to then go in and enforce this rule. And there's like some mystery behind, I guess, like this is like, I'm triggering like some, you know, 11th grade history here that I remember. But um, there's like some mystery behind why black people in Texas didn't know that they were free. And like, whether it was like, I think the messenger got like killed, right? Because like, you have to remember, like, it's not, this isn't going out on Facebook. Yeah. It's like, you're free, surprise. Um, and so then finally, this general went and had the numbers behind him to actually free every last person in Texas. And by the way, that me- like memorandum basically said, now you have to get paid for this relationship. That's basically what it said. Like, you're free, you have to get paid for this relationship. Well, yeah. like, how does that, that doesn't change how your overseer because yeah, ma- many of them boss. just stayed on the yeah many of the slaves stayed on the the plantations and now, now it's, well there was a mass migration to the north actually and there yeah, were like a number the of people of that yeah. moved to like Texas I believe the states were Texas Arkansas and Louisiana or not Texas Louisiana Arkansas I can't remember the third state that a lot of people fled to go find like family like pockets of their family. Um, and a lot of people did that, but a number of people, like it's the same, I equate this to the same thing as why, like some people can't leave during hurricanes. It's like, yeah, this is a really shitty situation, but I genuinely don't have the means to leave it. And that is exactly how that started is like your overseer doesn't see you differently now because you're free. He just pays you. A little bit (laughs) to be able to do what uh, what he legally, the legal minimum. Yeah. Yeah. Literally like it's like paying you some bullshit amount for you to do the exact same thing. And by the way, to think that he's not beating you is still absolutely freaking ridiculous, right? Like your let your quality of life is exactly the same. The only difference is now that he's like tossing you a dime every now and then. Yeah. It wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like, Oh, the, this, 
free slaves were freed and then oh everything's fine like we're, we're, we're equal it's like oh now that that all now that that's all over i can hear yeah I, lexi i've been meaning to tell you that you're equal to me but n- now i can like no that's yeah. not how it happened like you know i've been meaning to get around to that <laughs> yeah it's it's not how it happened and i think someone uh, a series that does a really good job of showing uh this process all the way through was roots I, i'm sure i mean we've uh, every, every black person pretty much has, has seen it, but it's it's a really really good film. If you haven't had the chance to watch Roots, it's it's unbelievable. Have you did you see the new one or the the older? I've seen version? like the old one with like older one. <laughs> yeah, no, that's no, that's a good one too. Yeah, so I've seen I've seen the new one as well, and it's like they both do a great job of explaining. Um, so the, the premises, uh, there's this um. Uh, a man that lives in living in Africa named Kunta Kente, uh, and he's taken from his home. I can't remember what country he's living in. And they take them to, yeah. And then they take them to the United States and it shows uh, his experience uh, growing up as a slave. And then not only that, but also his family tree, which is then um, go through the other types of, of racism where you're, where he is a slave and then like his, how his child is growing up and then his grandchild is growing up through just segregation, blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's really, really good and powerful and can show. Yeah. Right. When slave, like they're like, I remember they say slavery. Okay. Slavery is over. And then everyone's like, what do we do? We have no money. Like (laughs) it's not, it's not like they can just pack their things. They don't have anything. Like, where are you going to go? It's, they are the ones being owned. They have nothing that they own. Yeah. So it's it's really that's why I think it's really it's like sharecropping, right? Which is yeah, by sharecropping. Like different kind of slavery. Oh yeah, it, and the then, exact same thing. Like that leads to crime because people are going to steal when they need things for their families, mm-hmm. and then that leads to prison, which leads to the prison industrial complex. And the next thing you know, you're in 2020. Yep, and and now. Now people are, are wondering why uh, how we got here. <laughs> we got yeah. Why we're it's it's the, it's a yeah. similar thing. You're just taking the label off and writing something else. It's it's uh it's you just terrible. wrote private prison on there. That's the that's all we did. We took off slavery and wrote private prison. Yeah, because I I know that one thing that in a lot of our discussions has been popular is thirteenth, where it's talking about the thirteenth amendment and the emanci- you know emancipation of of uh, slaves. Or saying, and it doesn't actually say. If you read the law, it doesn't actually just say every, like slavery is outlawed. It's uh, unless it's being used as a punishment, which is uh, why the the prison system uh, can get away with doing essentially what is considered slavery, uh, just put put under different things. Which is why uh, you, you you constantly see these these private prisons being filled and being filled because it's like, well, this is our only way that we can get away with it as of right now. Uh, most prominent way we can get away with it. So let's let's keep doing it. And so it's it's cycling the same system. Further learning on that, if anyone is interested, is Angela Davis, who by the way is just like the most kick ass person I met her. Oh yeah, when I was in college. You got to meet her. Wow. Yeah, she's awesome. Um, I met her in college. That's awesome. And, but if you don't know, um, about Angela, first of all, you got to know about, um, auntie Angela, cause she <laughs> know about her, but, um, she does an amazing, amazing piece. I'm blanking on the name of it right now, um, about the prison industrial complex and it is phenomenal. Um, so look that up when you guys get a chance. What was the movie, uh, that she was in? Um, was it the help? I can't remember. 
uh, it was a little while ago. I remember seeing a thing where it was about um, like a lawyer, a white lawyer that say like kind of uh, helped out the a uh, group of uh, black women that were being um, mistreated. I can't remember the exact That's the hell. Yeah, it is the hell. Okay, so and she actually spoke up on just recently, uh, saying that she's. She was like, yeah, I, I wish that I had never starred in it because it showed as if uh, like the, the white savior complex, which is a thing that's going on a lot more recently where it's like, hey, the, these group of African-Americans really could only be saved by uh, this like the like the white savior, like the knight in shining armor essentially is what you know a lot of people can kind of think of. And she's like, yeah, it, it just showed that made it seem it as if help. I just looked it up. I don't, is it, it, wait, am I think is wait. No, I'm, I must be thinking of Viola Davis. Uh, uh, the one that's in um, How to Get Away with Murder? He is in. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. So Viola Davis is like long-time actor. Angela Davis long-time activist. Yeah. I, I don't know why I yeah. messed it up. Uh, I, no, Davis. Okay. Yeah. So, but yes. What you're touching on is very true and yeah. super impactful, right? Is like that white savior complex, which trying to explain to people is, um, I'm like, let's start with white fragility and then we'll go to <laughs> your white savior complex. Um, yeah. But yes, right, where it's like you need the white man or the white woman or whatever to save you mm-hmm. from whatever plight you have. Like you're you're unable to do it yourself. Yeah. Um, and I think that the help probably does a pretty good job of. Yeah, showing what that is. And it's, it's like, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fine line or in my mind, it's somewhat thick, but a fine line in some people's mind between allyship and, and white saviorism. Yeah, it, you can see it in a more modern view is the um, what get out uh, where there's the idea of the the people that are like oh I mean obviously that that changes in the in the film very quickly but like the, in the beginning uh, like when they're like I would have voted for Obama for a third term if I could have and you, and you're like uh, then you you understand later on in the film why that's uh, that's a little sketchy yeah, but watch that first of all Unbelievable. yeah. Um, so with all of these, we, we've seen a lot of different issues that are going on in, in the United States. Um, what are some, like, I, I'm all for figure, you want to know what this, what you're fighting, what the, what the problems are now, what are some solutions that you see? Um, let's, let's start with on the short term. Like what's something that us in the black community could do. And then some people that are outside of the black community can do to help in the immediate future. Um, with, you know, making this solution a little bit better? Yeah. um, So in terms of the black community, I'll say um, it's not the black community's fault and uh, problem that systemic racism exists in this country. So it's not their job to fix it. Um, I would say with that in mind that it's great if they want to help in their companies and their neighborhoods or whatever, but it is not the black problem. Um, yeah, I would say while it may not be the problem, I've always been uh, my view is like you should facilitate in your own rescue. Like if you're if you're if you're drowning and and you're not trying, someone's throwing you a, a buoy, you should try to grab it and so facilitate in your own rescue. So why I, I recognize I it's not it's not the African American. Yeah, I'm saying like, like there's still things. Racism might be the exception to that rule. Well, because, there's, there's still things that people can do. Like, I mean, like there's, well, but I would say, right. Like to the average, like African-American person or black person living in America is like when someone asks you for help, like maybe like if a white person's like, Hey, I don't, I don't understand this. As long as they're being respectful and you feel like you're okay today answering that, that's something, right? Like you can, we can change these things on a micro level. 
Um, and so, you know, that's one thing that I would say. I would say also in like companies or corporations, like if they're asking for opinions or thoughts, like, and you know that you have something that you want to say, like, say it. Like, this is our voices have never been louder. Never, ever, ever use yours. And that's what I mean. That, like, what you're saying is what I was kind of inferring. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think that it's like up to the, to Black America to be like, okay, like, let's band together, get a committee and solve this. It's like, no, I don't think that at all. I think that if, you know, if someone's asking you and you're trying to be proactive, that's great. And you want to do that. Like, definitely take that on. I just don't think, I, I hate the idea that like, first of all, black people were literally stolen into this country. And then it's like, okay, like we recognize that we effed up for 400 years. Can you help us fix it now? And I'm like, sure, I'll help you fix it on this micro level, but understand that it is not my problem to fix. It is your problem to fix. And I'm happy to help you along the way when it's convenient for me, but I'm not, I don't think it's, I think it's like very short sighted for us as as people to think that like we somehow can fix this problem that we did not create. And I do think that like we need white Americans to recognize that it's not your empathy or your sympathy, your empathy that's going to fix this problem. It's like your action. But I also think that there's like a level of education that's necessary in the black community as well um, to recognize why some of these things are to sort of help pick us up a little bit more. Right. Um, Because I think that, for a lot of people, they just, they don't understand why they are poverty stricken or why they can't break the cycle of teen pregnancy or whatever. And I think that if more people knew that, it might help them. Um, and that's not to say that education is going to solve teen pregnancy today. Like I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. Yeah, that's, um, that's long so term. I, don't, I, I don't think it's like some magic wand. Um, but I think that part of it is like, you know, recognizing that when people, or specifically white people, ask that that you're you're open to conversation. That's not to say that every conversation is for you. You don't. It doesn't. Every conversation doesn't serve you. It's okay. That's fine. Um, but being more open to the idea that, like, you know, my voice has never been louder. Let me use it now. You know, mm-hmm. um, that's like the one thing that I would say. Um, other than that, I think it's like a complete case by case basis, and you do what you can. Yeah, I'm thinking that um, while especially on the the short term and the immediate future, it's a lot. There's a lot. I think there's less that African Americans, Black people, can do to really make uh, the this short, yeah short term. Where, where long term, I think there's more with voting and uh, with you know joining these HBCUs and doing things like that. Those are some more long term. I know if you had business. Yeah, uh, what are like what were some of these? What do you think are some more long-term solutions we can see from people to make this issue that has finally been really unveiled completely, uh, maybe a lot smaller. Uh, so it's not, you know, while racism may always still be there, it probably always will. Uh, it'll be a much smaller issue, uh, you know, a couple, some years. From yeah. Now. It's hard cause it's so ingrained in the fabric of our society but I would say one is like supporting black businesses, right? Like the more we support them, the more black entrepreneurs that there will be, the more black CEOs there will be, all of those things. Mm-hmm. And so that for me is like a step one. Like I had a Starbucks the other day and my dad lit me up. <laughs> right? So I went and I looked up black owned coffee shops, right? Like that was 
easiest thing for me to do. I was like, all right, if my dad's going to light me up for Starbucks, rightfully so, like the least I could do is like look and see what's black owned. And it turns out that there's actually one like right near where you and I work on Halsey Street. There's a black owned coffee shop that's like, and their coffee's $2. I was like, oh, this is a no brainer. (laughs) No brainer. I'm saving money and I'm supporting black owned businesses. This is a no brainer. So that's one. I think another thing is, is an education piece. Um, Our schools need an overhaul. Oh yeah. Don't even get me started on that. (laughs) Clean and simple. And I think that if we had more, as I like to say, black and brown babies, my best friend from childhood is a, um, is a teacher in the seventh ward in new Orleans. And she is, has blonde hair and blue eyes, but she loves her, uh, her students and they're mostly black and brown babies. And the resources that she works with are disgusting. It's, it's, she's so, and she spends so much of her own money on these things, which is completely counter to the way that we grew up and the school that we went to. So that for one, is just like actually having resources that are the same as those suburban kids that have great tax money, um, go into their schools as you know, those black and brown babies. It's really poor. It's bad for, I can see that right away because my, so the school that I went to for, for high school is extremely well-funded. Like that has, there's a lot of taxes is like, um, I mean, they're going through, um, uh, there's been a lot of unveiling of some racism that has been in the school, uh, with, uh, um, it's a predominantly white school, um, but uh, I guess just the Renaissance eventually gets reset and people will hopefully be loving each other again. But it's, it's a very well-funded school, a uh, great place to send, to send a kid. And then just not even down the road, like if you, if I didn't grow up on the street that I'm on now and I grew up on the street, like two blocks down the road, uh, it's a, a school system that is not very well-funded and it's predominantly black and it's, it's, it, it you can see that the chances that the people that just live two blocks down the road for me get compared to what I'm receiving is night and day. You'd never think it's the same school. And it's like, it's so disheartening to see we live in the same area, but I'm, but I'm getting treated so much better than someone that lives just two down, two streets down from me. It's, yeah. it's awful. It's, it's insane. And it's, it's heartbreaking, but it's something that we can do something about. And that's, I'm like, no, this isn't just this thing that's like, oh, how do you stop like redlining from like a bank where it's like, that's so hard, you know, it's like, which we can stop also, but like, what is, could you explain what redlining is? Yeah. So redlining is basically this idea that banks and other systems like that have used to draw, they would literally draw like red lines on maps in predominantly black neighborhoods that would like tank the property values of these um, homes. And so it made it like a less desirable neighborhood. So when people were going to get like loans or things like that, it just like made it basically, it made it like legal to make it so that black people weren't getting loans at banks for homes. And so then that leads into this, like more of this like systemic racist system where Black people aren't getting loans, so they don't have money for homes. They're forced into projects. And it, like, it basically created like what a ghetto was. Yeah. And it legalized it. And by the way, banks in Atlanta were still getting caught doing this in like, like five years ago. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's not like the thing, a thing of the past, right? Like 
my dad was one of the only, like our family, like my aunt and uncle also, like our family was like one of two, I think there was two black families in the suburb that I grew up in. And my dad's like 50, like he's not old, you know, like it's like, these things are not like, I don't know what like lies your parents were telling you, but like this shit is like very real today. Um, so, you know, that's like something that I think we can solve. Right. Is like, I think urban suburban programs, for example, is like a really good start, but it's like, why should select kids get that? It's like by having an urban suburban program, we recognize that like suburban schools are better. So why not just like fund the urban ones? Like, <laughs> there you go. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like just make those better. There you go. Like I solved it for you in 26 seconds. Like, there you go. And I'm sure there's like all of these things, but it's like, no, the shit that you're going to tell me is like backlash is all bureaucratic. And I genuinely don't care. Like fund those schools. There you go. That will help us 15 years from now because there's some engineer sitting in that classroom that otherwise didn't have access because he was concerned about where his next meal was coming from. Not what the shit you were trying to teach him was. Yeah. Like it, to me, it's a no brainer. They're like, they're, I think it's it, it's awful, especially with um with what's going on today with the virus. I think it makes it even worse. Where a oh, lot yeah. of these a lot of these schools, uh, a lot of these students, they relied on the school systems for their lunches, uh, and and all these programs. And so and, you cut yeah. out and mm-hmm. snacks. Yep. So you cut out the last two months uh, that these students were, were going to have, even three, three or four months, depending on when it ends. Like now they they can't focus on their education because they may not have the laptops for Zoom uh, that all these other students may have. Or the quiet space. Or the quiet space. So so now uh, an already disenfranchised group of students is going to be going through even more now that they have these issues. So I, I'm hoping that sometime in the, the future, these are these schools are receiving the funds that they need because, I mean, if, you, if, you, if you're not going to, I mean, it, it, there's proof. If you can have such great schools, all schools could be like that. Like, I, it, you, have an, you have an opportunity. If, if, if it can happen with one, it can happen with, with many. So, but I think a school system and sort of what you're talking about here is like the best way to look at like a microcosm of systemic racism at work, right? So you have little Timmy is a black student at an inner city school and the pandemic hits. He doesn't have a computer. He has his mom's phone to do his Zoom calls. But mom is works, uh, you know, at Chipotle, right? So she goes in because she's an essential worker, but now mom has to worry about staying home and watching after her children, or she has to go work at Chipotle and worry about contracting the virus, but she also has to feed children that are at home, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's step one, right? Like we're already disenfranchised because mom has to make a choice between being a mom home with her kids or go work so that she can help them and feed them. Right. So now he doesn't have his phone because they don't have a computer. They just have mom's phone, which has internet access. And the public libraries are closed. If they and the public libraries are closed. <laughs> so. On top of that, who's going to take them to the public library? Mom doesn't have a car because mom doesn't have the money because mom, like, the, like the, it's literally just systemic racism at play. Like, it's just like, it's such a distinct, like, there's a distinct privilege in the fact that people like my mom never had to choose between being a mom and going to work. When my mom had me, she was like, I think I'll be a mom. And she just like fucked off of the workforce. And she didn't care. She didn't have to, you know, like it's, 
but every parent isn't like that. And then on top of that, like when your mom, like, or this person's mom, Timmy's mom doesn't have the education to help him with that math homework. Like how is he then like, you're creating this further gap all because all of like generational that like led to Timmy and this like phone in a pandemic. And it just like shed a spotlight on it for so many people. First of all, thank God. But like, there have been Timmy's for generations leading back to slavery in this country. Yeah, so um, it, it's finally, I mean, while the, the pandemic and the situation with, with, especially with George Floyd and other, all the other African-Americans that have been killed over the, over the years, I think it's obviously terrible and it's obviously awful. I think the fact that the pandemic and the, the George Floyd incident happened at the same time. Is and Breonna going, Taylor. And Breonna Taylor, especially. Uh, I think that it's, it's crucial uh, that it happened at this time because everyone's eyes are on it. And so you have no excuse now. Like you can't say I didn't see it. I I was too busy. Get it. For people that are like, I don't understand. I'm like, you, you, you must not have Google. Yeah, you, you, you just didn't see it. Uh, like, well, and how did you not see it? Or how did yeah, you, not do you know? go outside? <laughs> yeah. So I think that it's, I'm hoping that we can see change now. Cause this one feels different. Like with all of the other, like since just since December, there have been 82, probably more now since a week has passed, but there is 82 uh, black people that had been killed on armed black people that have been killed since December. Um, but, and so how many of those do we re- remember the names of? Not many, if any at all, but this one uh, where we've actually had movements for, and I'm hoping that th- this change that people are calling for happens because it's been too long and it's something that we need. Yeah, I want my kids to like look back and be like, I don't understand. Yeah. I don't want I don't want to have to tell my children about these types of situations. Like I don't want to have to have the talk with my child when he's sixteen. I don't. Like I want a white mother to have a conversation with her son or her daughter or her them they, whatever, right? Like I want a mother to have a child with her white child, a talk with her white child about what it means to be white in America. So I don't have to keep like black people don't have to keep doing that. Like yeah. I'm tired. I did it for 400 years. Our people did it for 400 years. You can do it now. It's fine. Go do it. <laughs> like We're done. Yeah. yeah. I, there's, I feel that the, the horizon of change for is just around the corner. I'm, I'm hoping that it happens. Uh, I'm, I think we that gotta keep the conversation going though. Conversation you know? needs to keep going. This isn't something that we, we have to stop that needs to that has to stop now we need to keep it going on so that in the future uh, all of our generations will, will be able to see it and i mean there's a lot of support for on both sides like not just within the black because obviously black community would be supportive but i've seen a lot of uh, a lot of my coworkers that are and a lot of my friends that are that are not black supporting and i'm like great now let's keep the same energy in six months <laughs> like like when it's gonna happen and then and then a year from now and then two years from now like that's the hardest part and so if, if they can do it, uh, I think that we really got a chance to have something, have something change here. Yeah. I think there's an awakening. I don't think, I don't think that they can, the white community can bury their head anymore. I think that they're like, Oh shit. It's like that. And we're like, yes. It's like <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't think they will. And if they do, I don't think that the black community will let them anymore. I just yeah. don't, like, I, I know I'm not like, I'm not going to go to work the same person. I'm not. Yeah, it's, I'm it's, not letting little slick shit slide, slide anymore. I'm not. 
you'll be like, yeah, uh, you just said that mm, we're not, we're not, I'm we're going like, to have a discussion about this. You, you know, you can just say like, oh, I didn't love that, you know, or whatever, yeah. explain it. But the problem is it's like when you don't know better, you don't, you can't do anything. Right. But when you know better, do better. Yeah. And that's exactly. But you guys are reading. So like, you know, better. So now you just made a choice. So let's make the right choices now. Exactly. Well, uh, Lexi, it's been awesome uh, chatting with you. Um, where can where can people find you uh, if they're looking to, to? I know you've posted a few things on social media about this. Uh, where yeah. can people find? Uh, uh, big on Instagram on this, um, alongside uh, content of me doing bougie things throughout my life. <laughs> um, listen, every black person is not the same. We can all be different, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, but you can find me at No Lex Zone. It's a little bit of a nod to uh, No Flex Zone. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, you know, some underscores in there, but you'll find me. It's a cute picture of me in a devil's uh, sweatshirt. You'll find me. I got that was a great photo shoot. Yeah, um, those times so that was, that was fun. <laughs> great. Uh, it's a picture from that. Um, but yeah, you'll find me. Um, I'm sure that Colin will put this out there and he'll tag me. Please feel free to follow along. Um, and if you want to DM me there and you want to chat more, you have questions about what I've said or you hate everything I've said, um, just know that I will laugh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, feel free to follow along. Um, always happy to, to teach and, uh, learn along the way as well. Awesome. Thanks, Lexi. Well, thank you everyone for listening to the show. It's been fantastic. Make sure you tune in next Thursday to get the next rendition of uh, Innovators Anonymous. It's going to be a great one. Um, Make sure that you're following us on Instagram at innovators.anonymous and make sure you give this podcast a rate, follow, and subscribe. Uh, Have a good one and bye.